once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake McClure today, because Elder Baldy is off exploring ancient and deceased civilizations in the American uh, Midwest. Southwest? Uh, yes, there are. He is out uh, exploring his educational roots. A lot of people don't know this about him. He has his education from way back before I was born in cultural anthropology, which fits in amazingly well in economics because it's just the movement of people. Uh, he, he has a degree in that and he's off exploring disappeared civilizations of the United States in New Mexico. Uh, so I've got the second week on my own. We got lots to talk about. Um, but before I get started, I have to give the disclosures. Number one, uh, I'm bald. I have a beard. I like puns. Uh, if that's problematic, you already know that the channel can be changed. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach. Well, that's a disclosure. I told you the name of the program. But that name is also the name of a firm that I'm also the principal at and that uh, Elder Baldy is a principal at, and that is the Personal Wealth Coach, which is an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Now, the radio program's not an investment advisory firm, but it's got the same name because we're doing the same sort of educational stuff. The SEC is where we register. That doesn't mean they like us. Yes, the SEC insists that anybody that registers with them tell everyone that they're registered with them, but then tell in no uncertain terms that registering with them doesn't mean that they're liked by them. That's not the term that they use, but you know that it doesn't imply any um, uh, favoritism or that we have passed any specific wonder-seeking. We're the best type tests because uh, I don't know that I could. I took an IQ test and it came back negative. I think that's a good thing. All right, um, but the firm's registered to give investment advice. If we can't do that on the air, we can't. What are we doing? This is an educational program. Why can't we give investment advice on the air? Uh, it isn't because there's some secret that would be told to the masses of the secret way to make money. It's because the advice that we give has to be custom tailored to the person we're talking to. And broadcasts have a one-size-fits-all deal. Uh, believe it or not, one-size-fits-all is not always in the best interest of the wearer. I know, it's weird. Uh, all right, next up, uh, the information that, that I'm going to be giving you comes from places that we have deemed to be reliable, but we are not warranting or guaranteeing the accuracy or completeness of that information. Anybody that does that is uh, probably not doing a good job. <laughs> Uh, and the last thing is we don't pay for this program. This isn't paid commercial advertisement. We do provide the program free of charge. We've been working for free um, for 25. I've been working at this radio program for 25 years through three different owners of the studio and station. And it was originally a panicked cry for help from the studio to fill some time with something that wasn't utterly boring. And they asked Old Baldy to come in and do it. And he asked me to come and join him when they asked him to do two hours instead of one. So 25 years ago, I started talking to people on the air free of charge. And that insanity has continued. I don't know why we, I do know why. We're doing it because number one, 
there's not enough education out there on the world of finance. What is economics and how does it fit in the world? How do you make decisions that'll better influence your life? A lot of this stuff, they don't even teach you the tools to know that you have a decision to make. So just like public education, I'm willing to pay taxes to fund education. For many years, I paid property taxes when I didn't even have a kid in school. It's gaspingly shocking, I know. I was paying for other kids' education. But I think it's a good idea. It's an infrastructure investment, if you will. My words to you could hopefully allow you to make better decisions if that's not too egocentric. Uh, I think it, it does help. So that's why we're giving education. Now, what happened this week in the market? Um, another week where if you'd watched the news, you would think horrible things were underway and the stock market was tanking because a lot of headlines of that occurred. However, the S&P 500 stock index, we measure it in, with the symbol SPX because it's consistent and we don't have to worry about a lot of the, there's a lot of ways of measuring the S&P 500. This is the easiest way. Um, the index closed at 3970.99. Well, that's obviously below the 4,000 mark and we know we were at the 4,000 mark not that long ago. So we must be down, except for this week, we're actually up 1.39%. And last week we were also up. So we're up about 2.83% from a couple of weeks ago when it dropped. Uh, it leaves the SPX almost 3.5% higher than it started the year. So we're still in gains for the calendar year. It's almost 11% higher than it was in mid-October. That was the bottom that we would consider the bottom of the bear at this point. And it's 77% higher than it was three years ago at the bottom of the pandemic panic. Uh, think about that. 77%. Perspective is really important. The time in which we're looking at the movement in the market. So this week we're up, but any given week could, we could be down. Looking at when you're measuring from is vital. I, I wish this was written everywhere, but it's not. It's just really important. Perspective is really vitally important. The other index that we watch is the CRSP U.S. Mid-Cap Value Index. Um, it was up about half a percent for the week to close at 2216.86. That's down 14% from its high in January of 2022. Uh, it's up 5.25% for this calendar year. Okay, so why is it up less than the S&P 500? That's not been the case a lot lately, and people have asked us that. Well, because it owns, in the CRSP mid-cap index, it's owning stuff that's valued on what it owns, and that includes some banks. So obviously, there's been some bank turmoil lately. Uh, the 10-year U.S. Treasury note yield didn't move almost at all for the week. Now, it, it did during the week a bit, it, but it closed last week at 3.38 or 3.39, and it closed this week at 3.38. So on all of this turmoil, those rates remained pretty locked steady for the week long. There's some fluctuation up and down in the middle of that, but it was a very narrow range of movement. That signifies that there's some effort being made by the Federal Reserve to calm interest rates. Okay. So that's good news. Uh, the highest, well, let me say we're still in an inverted yield curve. What does that mean? It means that the longer term loans, the ones that are supposed to have the highest interest rate don't. 
the shorter term loans that are supposed to have the lowest interest rate have the highest interest rate. So we're still inverted, and that's not a good sign for the economy. Uh, at the beginning of the inversion of the yield curve, we said this is going to lead to layoffs across the growth sector. At some point, it'll cause some strain on banks that have too long maturity. I actually, actually recommend that folks go back a year or so on our website and listen to the programs that we were giving about a year ago. Well, why a year ago? Because that's when interest rates started up. March 16th was when the Federal Reserve announced their raise in interest rates. It's the first time they, that, that was 2022. That was the first time they had done that since they dropped it for the pandemic. Okay. So go back then and, and if you get the opportunity to see if we've changed our minds or didn't warn you about possible middle-sized bank failures, go back to those programs and listen to it. What does it happen? Banks get more profitable if they have a traditional balance sheet during high interest rates. But the banks that have been taking the most advantage of the Fed's uh, low interest rate loans to buy treasuries and so on, they can get into trouble. We talked about that. And that's what we've been seeing happening at these banks that have gone down. First Republic, SVB. First Republic is still struggling along, but SVB is no longer a bank. It has been taken over by another bank. The FDIC was involved. So the banks that concentrated in the wrong area got hurt. So one of the things that happens when the Federal Reserve raises rates is they say, do you want to take a lot of risk over there and maybe only make a little bit more and maybe make a loss? Or do you want to lock it up with us and we're guaranteeing this stuff for a period of time? So risky assets start to tremble because the money's not coming to them anymore. This is the venture people I was talking about before. This is new growth companies. This is why Google, Amazon, I should say Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, the big tech companies are laying off. Why are they laying off? Because the cheap money isn't there to keep growing. And maybe they overgrew and they paid for it with cheap money that's getting expensive. So when that occurs, they have to say, whoa, we got we to gotta pull back. This is more expensive than we thought it was. It's not just the expense of the employee. It's interest on the expense of the employee. And that interest goes up. So everyone looks at their interest rate and says, whoa, this is becoming a bigger part of the budget. Where can we cut? Why is Apple kind of missing from this this?" position? Why, why aren't they laying off people in droves like the other tech companies? This is not, by the way, any kind of a statement that you should do anything with Apple. Not, I'm not saying you should buy them or sell them. You've got to do your due diligence. They did make a good decision a few years back in selling 100-year loans at absolutely the lowest interest rate that we've seen in a century. That's, and we said it at the time, if everybody, if all the big tech companies did this, they're going to avoid problems when interest rates go up later. If the federal government would do this right now, it would be a good thing. At that time, the federal government, um, this is a weird thing. It was probably at the treasury level. Um, but during the Trump administration, most of the debt of the U.S. government, that was new debt, was put into pretty short-term positions, uh, two to six years, which is weird. Uh, usually, if interest rates are low, you want to go with longer-term loans on that. Uh, well, that stuff's coming due, and that's going to cause a little bit of extra. We talked about this at the time as well, that why are we doing it on the shorter term? Why don't we get longer-term loans for this low interest rate? For some reason, 
the administration wasn't listening to our program when we said to do that. Um, so this is one of those oddities. Now, what's, what's the role of the Treasury in this? What's the role of the Federal Reserve and the banks? Janet Yellen is out there saying, hey, we've got to believe in the system. I had an, a question about Janet Yellen and what, what I thought um, Janet Yellen's, give a critique of Janet Yellen's role as Treasury Secretary. Um, and this was between programs, so in the last week. Well, Janet Yellen is an academic, very, very apolitical, very, until now. She's a treasury secretary. And when you, when any administration brings in a treasury secretary who is an academic professional economist, not a political economist, we get weird things. So Tim Geithner, for instance, was hired by uh, George Bush, um, Hank Paulson, these are, these are a couple of Republican nominees that were crucial in the banking issues during the global financial crisis. And Janet Yellen has been in pretty constant contact with them over the past month. What, what is she doing talking to Republican appointees? What, what is this? If you're only looking at it from a political spectrum, it doesn't make sense until you realize that Tim Geithner and Hank Paulson survived transitions from Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican administrations and served across. The Treasury Secretary role is supposed to be more apolitical than the other roles. It's kind of like the Attorney General. You really don't want them to be in a really political setup. You want them to be focused on following the laws. The Treasury should be focused on that. Well, the Treasury Secretary's job is also to try to sell Congress on the president's budget because they're supposed to be in charge of putting that thing together. So there's politics involved in any treasury secretary. Her role so far, I think, has been exemplary. But then I'd say that for the past probably 12 treasury, treasury secretaries, regardless of Democrat, Republican appointees, we've had a string of really good ones. And I know that's going to cause... Republicans to think I'm insane because I'm saying good things about Janet Yellen, who was appointed by Biden. And I know it causes Democrats to think I'm nuts for saying Tim Geithner did a good job. Are you aware of what happened under his watch? Yeah, I also know what his job was. I know what Janet Yellen's job is, and they're really doing a good job. It's really hard for me to point at major mistakes being made by uh, the, the preceding about a dozen treasury, sec treasury secretaries. And that's weird because I should be complaining about them in some capacity. But Janet Yellen, she should have had a Nobel Prize already. She participated on a paper with her husband who got the Nobel Prize. <laughs> so yeah, there's politics in that too. Uh, her role as a Fed chairperson, I guess you can't call her chairman, was exemplary. She did a fantastic job there. That's purely economic speaking, zero politics. Just looking at the decisions she made when she made them. And you can always look back with 2020 hindsight and said that she should have done this or she should have done that. Or we can say that about anything. We, we shouldn't have passed the law in 2018 removing stress tests from medium-sized banks. Uh, we shouldn't have uh, repealed Glass-Steagall in 2020 in 2000 because that just led to the problems that led to the global financial crisis. The reality is nobody can see the future and you make decisions the best way you can. Is politics involved? Absolutely. 
It's a mess. Our government, the way it works, is the ugliest, nastiest, ickiest process on the planet, except for all the others. <laughs> and that's paraphrasing a Winston Churchill quote about democracy. So as bad as it is, as horrible as our political divide is when we're making these decisions, as, as bad as that all is, it's still better than what's happening elsewhere. And if we look at our banking issue and we say it was the regulators that did it and it was the president that did it, and that's the normal go back. This is, this is the fallback. Anytime you have a catastrophe, it's the current administration that's done it. And anytime you have a boom and a wonderful thing happening, it's the current administration that's done it. That's not necessarily true, but that's how the people look at it. What I would point out for those of you that want to look a little deeper is that Credit Suisse is is in the process of a failure at a much, much, much larger level than Silicon Valley Bank. That's not me laughing and saying, ha ha, the Swiss failed. It's me pointing out that banking issues happening at points when interest rates are going up happen regardless of location. And in the United States, we were extra paranoid about our biggest banks. So you're not seeing the big banks have this issue. The ones that are the really big banks are not having trouble here. Credit Suisse would be considered a big bank. It's big. Actually, when it's combined with UBS, the bank itself will be larger than the economy of Switzerland. Yeah, that's big. Uh, and the majority of the people of Switzerland believe it should be broken up into lots of banks. And that's a good idea because it's now at a too big to fail moment. Who will come in and buy UBS if it fails? So it needs to be broken up. The Swiss have a lot of work to do. This is a good way of underlining that this is not an American administration problem. It isn't Biden or Trump or Yellen or Greenspan, or you could throw names in randomly of anybody that could possibly been involved. The reality is that when a major financial storm happens, well, what is the financial storm? The pandemic the war in Ukraine, when those things happen, there are things that need to be done to prevent utter catastrophe. And sometimes you're already in the process of doing them, and sometimes you're not. So in the United States, we were already in the process of doing them for the big banks. The regulators were scrutinizing because our last collapse was horrible. Well, the Swiss weren't as badly affected by the global financial collapse. They, they weren't. Because they've been making really good decisions. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we're about out of time for this hour. we got another hour coming up. But if you'd like to talk to me off the air or us off the air, we do give investment advice and portfolio management to people of relatively high net worth, to trusts and foundations, partnerships, companies, and so on. Um, the local number with voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week, uh, is 254-947-1111. You can reach that toll-free, assuming you have a landline at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can read our newsletter and sign up for it. It comes out every Friday. Uh, you can listen to our program going back lots of years. There's podcasts wherever you find podcasts, small size, big size. It's amazing stuff. You can contact us on our contact, contact form or jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com.